Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, joined as always virtually in the studio by Billy, who's on our wine team. Billy, how are you doing? Uh, pretty well. Excited to talk about or answer some questions for the event community here. Yeah, today we wanted to kind of keep it pretty streamlined, both for folks who've been listening to our podcast for a while and haven't had a 10,000 overview of who Vint is and what we do. We wanted to provide a little bit of context through a Q&A, but we also wanted to dive into some, maybe some of the common questions that users have when they come to our platform, whether they are coming from the wine side of things and understand the asset. Uh, but don't really understand how it fits in as a financial product or folks who come to us as a seasoned investor and maybe are just curious about, wow, how does wine, something that I like to consume, fit into my portfolio? So hopefully the range of questions that we have both about Vince business and about wine as an asset class, Billy and I answering those today, hopefully will help to provide some context around what we do. Two things I just want to mention that are really important to us in terms of how we run our business is education and transparency. These were kind of two pillars that came about at the founding of our company that we recognized as non-existent in the wine world originally, at least in the investment side of, of wine. There was a ton of opacity, lack of transparency, lack of education around wine and wine investing, tended to be sort of a black box, a lot of hurdles to get into the asset class. And so we wanted to provide more accessibility, not only for folks who have never invested in wine before, but also for those who were already investing in wine and wanted an easier way to access the top wines in the world and further diversify their portfolios. So I think we've done a good job of building a platform that is transparent, and hopefully you'll see that today in some of the answers that Billy and I are able to provide. Certainly, if there's something that we don't cover on this podcast, reach out to us. You can email me anytime at Brady at Vint.co. That's B-R-A-D-Y at Vint.co. And then Billy at the same address, Billy, B-I-L-L-Y at Vint.co. So let's just dive in, Billy. I think the first set of questions we have are around Vint as a business and maybe a little bit more about our platform. And then the second set of questions more direct towards you and the wine side of our business and how we can think about wine as an asset versus just how you know Vint runs as a platform. One of the first topics we want to touch on is just how is Vint different than other wine platforms and investment companies out there? I think a good place to start here is understanding what Vint actually does. Vint is the first platform to provide the ability to invest in SEC qualified shares of wine collections. So basically the history of the wine investment world is such that if you weren't connected to a producer, if you weren't on a allocation list already, or you didn't have ways to be connected with wine merchants and, and, and brokers who could give you access to the top wines, what you would do is connect with a, with a company. You may send them a set amount of minimum investment, maybe $10,000, $30,000, and they'll show you their wine list and say, this is what we have available. This is what we can put together for you. It's very transactional in that way. And so what we wanted to do was open up the process, make it a little bit more transparent and turn this asset class into one that was a little bit more familiar to our investors. I think our founders recognize that we don't invest in many other assets this way, where you send someone money and they send you back a list. It felt very transactional and there was a lot of lack of detail and a lot of lack of education and information around the asset class. So I think turning the Vint platform into a place where people could buy curated collections of fine wine by the share in a very similar way to which they buy stocks makes a lot of sense for new investors to the asset class and provides some familiarity as well as the benefits of diversification. So when Vint goes out and puts together a collection of fine wine, very typically they are themed collections, maybe a collection um, focused around wines from Bordeaux or Burgundy, or maybe from a specific vintage. We'll bring those wines in-house and list them on the Vint platform. Let's just say we acquired $100,000 worth of wine. We may list the platform or the collection on the platform at $50 a share, $100 a share. We tend to stay in that range. And folks are able to purchase equity stake 
in the wine collection versus buying whole physical bottles. Yeah, I think that's probably really the biggest differentiation between us and some of the traditional platforms is buying shares and registered securities versus whole physical bottles. Yeah, agreed. And and the value in that is not only a familiarity of investment vehicle, but it's also the ability to invest in bottles that would be probably exclusionary for many people, or it would take up a large part of many people's portfolios. There are bottles in our collections that are upwards of $20,000 a piece, or if you're looking at the spirits, upwards of $100,000. So unless you're you know having a, a million dollar plus wine portfolio, we're offering access to some of these different vintages and different producers that would typically only be reserved for like the the top one, one percent of the one percent of the wine investing community. Yeah, for sure. I think when we talk about access and we even used to use the word democratization in the past, I think we often think about retail investors, maybe lower total dollar amount investors who are able to access a new asset class. But I think that's a good point that yes, this platform may be for that investor, but it's also for very large investors who want more capital efficient diversification. I think to date, if you had invested in every wine collection that was offered by Vint, you would have a total wine portfolio exposure to over 3,000 bottles of wine. We're approaching $3 million invested on the Vint platform in terms of collections that we've sold out up until this point. And we just launched our 31st offering. So the opportunity to get into a variety of different collections from around the world, I think is really high with, you know, with the way that we're approaching the asset class. Billy, do you want to kind of go down our list and we can work through the questions, you know, after that kind of extended intro? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm trying to figure out where we want to take it first. Let's keep it on the business side for now. We can dive into the wine stuff. So when we're we're sourcing these collections and putting them together for our investors, and then we're also taking care of them, and we'll get into the storage stuff down the line. What what fees does Vint take? How how does Vint make our money? You want to touch on that? Yeah, I think that's important to address for those of us who have kind of been around the investing world for a while and have maybe even used some other alternative investment platforms or even just asset managers or robo advisors. Typically, there are either management fees, those can be assessed annually. There may be performance fees based on you know how well the particular uh, portfolio does over X span of time. There may be transaction fees, but we've really tried to simplify our fee structure down. We take a sourcing fee, and then we take a few additional percentage points to cover things like storage and or broker-dealer relationships and some other costs associated with bringing a collection to the platform. Typically, our sourcing fee is around 10%. One of the things we like our investors to keep in mind, and a way that we've really tried to act with integrity and transparency with our platform, is that we're not assessing any more fees throughout the life of the investment. So there are no annual management fees. There are no additional fees for storage. If we end up having to hold the collection for longer, there are no transaction fees on the sales side. So when investors come to our platform and they see $50 a share for a collection valued at $140,000, they know upfront the total value of the asset that they're about to purchase and the total lifetime cost of owning that investment. So for the sake of transparency, we've set the platform up that way. And we've also allowed investors to, well, we haven't allowed it, but the SEC requires us to post, you know, in our filing page, the breakdown of all of our fees for each collection that we offer. So if you're ever interested in the total fees assessed, their costs associated with a give, any given collection, you can find that on our SEC filing page on the SEC website. And I can provide the link to that in the description below. So around 10%, that's the only fee assessed in terms of a sourcing fee on the front end of the investment, nothing afterwards. Yeah. And and when you're thinking about the sourcing fee too, it's not just Vint taking it as, as profit. That's all that, that money's going towards insurance, that money's going towards storage and potentially moving the assets to our storage facilities. So it, it's getting put to use as well. So think of it that way is it's it's taking those burdens off you as well. If you were to store and and manage your own wine portfolio, there'd be a number of other layered on fees outside of just the wine itself. So it's good to kind of think about it that way as well. 
Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of folks don't recognize the, you know, sometimes it can be between 12 and 20, 21% taken as premiums at auction houses and other places where you might acquire high-end wine. So we really try to simplify the approach here. And as I said, make it transparent. Vint does, it is part of our, our investment mandate, our management mandate to take at least half a percent ownership in every collection that we launch. So Vint does participate in the upside on these offerings. We try and align ourselves with investors in a way that holds us accountable to selecting you know, really quality assets. And I think that our fee structure, the fact that it happens on the front end, actually further incentivizes us to go out and look for the best pricing that we can acquire for our investors, because that allows us you know, as a business to take our margin, keep the lights on while also providing investors with an opportunity to have, you know, hopefully success when we launch the collection through the life of it. Cool. I, I think a good transition from here would be how long does, should I expect to hold my investment or how long are we expecting until we liquidate these sure. collections for the most part on average? Yeah. So as I mentioned before, most of our offerings, well, not most, all of our offerings are themed. We've done some double dipping, like we've had multiple Bordeaux offerings and multiple Burgundy offerings, multiple Domaine de la Romani Conti offerings. But each of these different collections tends to have a slightly different investment thesis and thus a slightly different time horizon aimed at trying to provide some kind of ballpark range to when we might be able to exit that collection. That time span tends to be between two and five, two and six years. One outlier example of this was actually our first offering that we were able to provide a distribution on. That was our Champagne Stars collection, which we began making sales on and provide a distribution to investors within less than a year of the collection's launch. I think that offering was originally slated to be held for three to four years, but I tell that I share that to indicate that we have a lot of flexibility with when we're able to. Uh, both be a, a buyer on the acquisition side, but also a seller uh, when we're looking to exit collections. So investors should always expect that their investment is going to be uh, tied up and held on the Vint platform for kind of a, a middle between that range of two and five, two and six years, but also knowing that we want to take market opportunities. We will take opportunities as the market provides them. Yeah. And to build on the the opportunity aspect, we... I mean, there are certain collections like our Kurosawa 36 Views of Mount Fuji collection that will always be sold, or we think at least, as a collection because the value is in the some of the parts, not just the individual pieces. But for the most part, we have wine collections made up of a bunch of different parcels of, of wines, different vintages, different producers. And we're always looking for the opportunities, if they come up, to sell individual parcels. So the Champagne collection had just about 20% of the collection sold. You know, it is possible that, you know, we we will be selling the other pieces over a period of time. It is possible it will reach into that two to four year window. So, you know, just because a part of it sold doesn't mean it all will be. So that's another way to kind of look at your horizon. And and this is a common question, I think, that we get, Billy, who are we looking to sell to? Who's buying these collections on the the backside of of these offerings being listed? Yeah, we're, we're pretty agnostic when it comes to our selling outlets. And we're basically always keeping our investors in mind, trying to find the best prices for them. So it could be partner retailers. It could be brokers looking to supply some wine for their clients. We haven't looked at any auction settings yet, but that's a potential down the line as well. And even hospitality is is an outlet down the line. So all options are open and it's really where can we get the, the best return, potential return for our investors. All right. Well, let's, let's kind of pivot here a little bit. Well, not really much of a pivot, but away from individuals or just trying to do maybe smaller scale investments. I guess this is a double question. What if I want to invest larger amounts in the collections that you have open and does Vint allow entity investments? Can you kind of, I think those kind yeah. of go hand in hand. Yeah. So we, we tend to, we, we try and keep the number of open collections on our platform to below three three or four offerings. Very often when you come to the Vint website, you'll see one or two collections open. And say an investor comes, they see that there's a collection open that has 
just say 100 shares left, $20,000 total value. And they say, oh, I was looking to start with 25 or $30,000. How can I, you know, how can I spread these funds out? If you're looking to invest a larger amount in the Vint platform, we can certainly work with you to put together a little bit more structured allocation strategy. I tell folks all the time that because of how we, we try and vary the collections that we offer and really keep an eye on diversifying the assets that we list on the platform, most people could get by and have an extremely well-diversified portfolio by investing smaller amounts in every offering as they come out. We do have larger investors who maybe like to be a little bit more hands-on and strategic about that allocation. So certainly reach out to us if you have an amount, I'd say over twenty or 25000 that you're looking to, to invest, and we can help you to be a little bit more strategic about where you allocate those funds across a span of time. That kind of plays into entity investments. We certainly work with larger funds and institutions not just private individuals and even private individuals might be investing through an LLC or some other entity. We do allow entity investments and outside of entities, we also allow investments through self-directed IRAs and some 401ks. Because we're not selling physical wine bottles, our, our product isn't a collectible. It's not considered a collectible. It's considered a security, trying to be careful with the language (laughs) that we use. We're selling registered securities with the SEC, which means that you can hold these assets in these tax-advantaged accounts like our IRAs, which we have over 10%, I think, of our investors currently investing through some of our IRA partners, which has been really great for them. It's awesome for us because it kind of gives us access to a different kind of customer as well. So if you have any questions about investing with your entity, with an IRA or other tax-advantaged account, or if you're interested in just making a larger investment and spreading that investment out over time, certainly be in touch with us and we can put together a plan that works for you. Yeah. And we can put some links in the notes for this podcast of some partner Mm -hmm. IRA partners that we currently are working with. So you guys can check those out. Can you also touch on what TribeVest is and how I might want to do that to invest in Vint? Yeah, Tribevest is a a partner that we kind of linked up with maybe three or four months ago now, and it was it was really cool to see them kind of come into partnership with Vint because I'd heard about them in the past as a platform where you could make the process of investing with friends and family or just a group of individuals a little bit easier. So maybe maybe not everyone knows this, but you can create an LLC or other entity to be able to bring multiple members into an investment group to make larger investments. Tribest makes this really easy by providing a platform to both create and manage a multi-member LLC to be able to invest in assets from stocks and securities all the way to things like real estate and wine and art assets that you can hold, but which typically for the individual might be a little bit out of their price range. And so bringing in a number of other individuals can help to defray some of the costs and spread out the financial burden. TribeVest is a great partner with us because they help to, we we send send investors both ways and give people more options for teaming up with friends and family to invest in our platform. One thing that's really helpful about Vint is, you know, because we're selling by the share, the Initial investment is just one share, which is typically $50 or $100. So there aren't a lot of issues with access that you would need to bring in a large group of folks, but it is helpful when you have a well-diversified portfolio among your friends through a platform like TribeVest that you can also add wine. So we're, we're glad to partner with TribeVest. And if my explanation of what they do was a, little, was a little bit of a runaround, I'll also put a link in the description where you can check them out, but they're a great partner to us. Awesome. So I think we'll do one more kind of traditionally investment focused question that we can get into some more of the wine and spirit stuff. How should I think about wine and spirits among my other portfolio assets? Yeah, I think this is a great question and a common question that we get a lot. When we went out and did research on the highest earning individuals in the world and the kinds of investments they make, we noticed that about four to 6% Typically, I think the number that folks use in the industry is 5% 
of high net worth individuals' portfolios are allocated to alternative assets. And so these are non-traditional assets outside of the traditional equity markets like stocks and, and other you know, public securities. When we think about wine, we're also considering assets like fine art, short-term real estate investments, watches, luxury handbags, generalized like collectible categories. So when we think about a 5% allocation to these assets, it's really a way to provide true diversification outside of your primary assets in your portfolio. There are two ways to think about diversification, I think, that are helpful. One is diversification in the sense that you might own a tech stock and an energy stock. And that's certainly like inter- inter-asset diversification, owning two different companies in two different sectors. But then there's another form of diversification, which is related to how correlated the assets are as a category. And that might be the difference between owning stocks in just say Amazon and owning a fine wine collection. The correlation between fine wine and a benchmark index like the S&P 500 is 0.12. So if you think of a one-to-one perfect correlation, they go up and down together would be like, just say 1.0. Wine has almost a inverse correlation, almost a negative correlation, I should say, to the S&P 500. Another asset that's really popular to invest in as an alternative, like I mentioned, is fine art. Wine and fine art actually have an inverse correlation. So they tend to run inverse to one another. One might go up and the other might go down, you know, and the other way around as well. So fine art, fine wine, traditional investments in the stock market create a really interesting trifecta of investments typically in a portfolio. And so I think that considering diversification as uh, diversifying the types of assets in terms of their category, as well as thinking about that correlation number and how well correlated different assets are to one another is really important consideration when you're thinking about how wine might fit into your portfolio. Yeah, 100%. Awesome. Well, let's transition a little bit into some wine-related questions, and then we can wrap up with a little bit more about the final business stuff. So is there anything you want to start with here? Yeah, I think let's talk about selecting the wines. You know, there have been other platforms that featured wine as a fractional asset as well. We only focus on focus on wine and spirits. How do how do we choose the wines that we feature just from like the wine team side of the business? Yeah. So so there's a number of considerations that we look at. If you uh, like I can kind of rattle them off here. And we'll we'll be publishing kind of more of our our theses around these for people to read over time as well in some blog posts. But we look at region, producer, vintage, quality as kind of the core kind of foundational benchmarks, I guess you would look at. A lot of these things over time have dictated, you know, I guess we want to say like the the desirability, I guess, of wine. There are certain regions that have been producing wines with track records of potential returns for, for years and years. So there's the really kind of core regions, we'll call them for now, kind of like Burgundy and Bordeaux. And then there are other regions that have been well known for investment wines like Champagne in Italy over the years, and it might not be quite as well established as Bordeaux. And then there's other emerging markets, kind of the US has really come onto the scene over the past couple of decades. Same with there's some Australian wines, Spain and the Rhone Valley. So we kind of first look at region, we go deeper and dive into the producers or certain producers within, within every region that stand out among others. And then we'll look at the quality of the vintage, whether that be, you know, scores from critics, just great years in terms of weather. We'll do a little bit of that analysis. And that's kind of like the the base level. If you're if you're looking at it as kind of the the food pyramid, I guess that's like your carbs. It's it's the widest side at the bottom. It's kind of what you need to get really start going. But then from there we'll kind of look deeper into scarcity and liquidity of these assets, trying to consider how much of this wine was produced in a given year compare that to its current demand, which is where the liquidity comes in. So it doesn't matter if there is only five bottles of a wine produced, if nobody wants it, that doesn't really matter. So you got to find this right balance between scarcity, demand and liquidity. So trying to find bottles that aren't produced in such high volumes that it is possible for, for value to go up over time potentially, but also 
having liquidity to the point where there has to be a market. Somebody needs to want to buy these wines or spirits at some point in time. The final variables, I guess we would look at for here is when it really comes down to, say we've identified a region, we've identified producers and vintages, there's the right level of scarcity and demand. Then we we dig into the final aspects of provenance and, and entry price. So we, we work really hard to get the best pricing that we can for our investors. And this kind of goes back into, again, that sourcing fee. Sometimes it might be variable, but we're working our best to get that actual thesis price to be the lowest for our investors in terms of being able to provide a, a valuable investment for them. And then we're always looking at sourcing and provenance. So we're doing our due diligence, working with our partners to ensure that these wines are have been stored properly, that they're legitimate, they're as close to the source as possible, and that they're in pristine condition. And I would say those are the kind of the, the levels of variables in terms of broadest to most specific that we get into. That's great. That's good context. We we tend to have, I mean, I call it six different individual categories of the collections that we tend to offer. So we can think about red wine, white wine, sparkling wine, wine futures, whiskey, and then cask whiskey. Are there any other assets that we've been considering, you know, adding to our portfolios? And a second part of that question, how do you think about white wines and are they investment worthy? Well, first, I I would say, taking a step back, we have all of those categories and we've invested in all of them because, again, going back to the diverse portfolio, they all kind of play a different role within a portfolio. So for for example, bottled wine versus bottled whiskey, wine is still developing in the bottle. It's going to be, you know, in theory, the fine wines are improving. So there's going to be certain drinking windows down down the line that well, you know, versed connoisseurs are going to be looking to drink these certain wines in. Whereas bottled whiskey, on the other hand, is not developing any further in the bottle. And it's collected either for its initial, you know, the age of the whiskey in the bottle, the packaging, the rarity, the limited edition. So those are two things we kind of consider one. And then when you're looking at the wines itself, between white and sparkling and red, I well, first of all, you can start with, yes, white wines are not only ageable. There are some of the most expensive wines in the world can be white wines. I would say compared to red wines, fewer white wines in the world as a whole age well. Most white wines that you'll see in the grocery store elsewhere are made in a very quick style meant to preserve aromatics and be kind of very approachable when young. Very few of them have what it really takes in terms of like a makeup of the actual structure of the wine to age well, which is, you know, for a white wine, that would be acid, sugar and alcohol are kind of the key component. There's a little bit of a a phenolic compound aspect going in there that can either be derived from the grape or aging in oak. But so I I would say there are fewer white wines in general that are age-worthy, but there are a number of them and they can be quite expensive and investable. So when when you're looking across from white wines to sparkling wines to red wines, I, I would say in terms of their development and where their drinking windows are, White wines and sparkling wines will have an earlier standard drinking window as a whole, just speaking very broadly here, than what red wines. So what's interesting there is if you're investing in a portfolio of younger white wines, maybe similar age sparkling wines, similar age red wines, the, the white wines may have an earlier liquidity window in terms of sales because certain collectors or buyers are looking to drink those wines or consume those wines earlier. Whereas sparkling wines may have a little longer window. Champagne in particular has a really nice historical valuation of basically a strong correlation to value and age. So once it starts hitting that five, 10 year after release range, you know, they really start to have, you know, sometimes traditional historical steps in value appreciation. So that's really interesting. And then red wines, yeah, we're starting to see young wines attract really high valuations and some older wines also, you know, they, they've appreciated a lot since their release time, but now it's interesting to see really high prices for some of these red wines off the bat. And part of that is because of the way that they're aging. Certain regions like California age, or I guess they don't, they don't age more quickly, but basically they're approachable younger than say wines of Bordeaux, whereas some people say the best Bordeaux shouldn't be consumed even, you know, after, before 20 or 30 years of aging, whereas some of the best 
California wines show well, even after only 10 years or less, actually. So when you're thinking about it as part of a portfolio, it's kind of cool there is say you have whiskey that's not developing anymore. So an investor, we could, you could sell that at, you know, any certain time, but it's not really dependent on the liquid in the, in the bottle. White wines, you tend to have a little bit of an earlier window, but some of the best burgundies can age for decades. Sparkling wines, again, similar to white wines, may have a little earlier selling window because they're actually drinkable. You know, when they're released, most vintage sparkling wine is released after 10 years. And then red wines have that. So it's kind of a cool mix. And it's, it's, it's a way that you're able to kind of diversify your portfolio in terms of exit dates and disbalance. And then quickly, I'll touch on casks, both of wine and whiskey. The whiskey casks are interesting because number one, the spirit's still developing inside. Number two, whiskey is known for having these, these age statement um, kind of milestones. So whether it be 12, 15, 18 years, 21 years or more, you're able to get a cask that has you know the proper amount of alcohol sits there and it develops. And once it hits these milestones, there's a different audience, a different potential selling department. I mean, sometimes collectors do buy the, the casks, but a lot of the time you're looking at independent bottlers or potentially even distilleries buying casks back themselves. So there's a whole different kind of customer for that, which is nice because it helps diversify the audience. And then casks of or futures of wine are interesting as well because you're basically buying these wines while they're still developing and resting in barrel before they're even bottled. So you have a little bit of runway that you're paying the basically helping with the cash flow of the winery by giving them money early. They're helping continue to maintain the wine, but as a kind of benefit of to you of investing early, you'll you tend historically at least to pay lower prices than when the wines are bottled. So they're they're in past, you know, over time, there has been seen a price jump as soon as the wines are bottled. Now that's that had varied over the years, especially with you know some of these Bordeaux wines being released to such high prices, but there's a lot of value to be found in futures. And we're working to kind of extend that value away from just the ultra premium and working with producer partners throughout the US and the rest of the world. Yeah, great. I, I think those conversations about how to understand the different assets in your portfolio is really important. We're actually working on a number of different ways to help showcase the diversification that you can have between these six kind of subcategories of the wine and spirits world on our platform. We're working on some features to help visualize that a little bit better on the portfolio page. So just a note to our users, if there's anything that you want to see on your portfolio page and understand about the asset class and about the assets that you own, reach out to us and, and let us know what you're looking for, because we're really trying to build a product that provides the information that our users are seeking. Billy, thinking a little bit about storage, because I think, I mean, I definitely didn't know that there was such a massive private storage infrastructure around the wine world. And I guess if I had thought about it a little bit, I may have understood that collectors couldn't keep their wine collections at their house all the time. But we work with some pretty large storage facilities. Can you talk just a little bit about storage in general? And then what happens if something happens to the wines while they're being stored by vent, like if the bottles break or if there's some other adverse event that affects the the assets? Yeah. So number one, starting out, vent works with a network of partners throughout the world, both in the United States and Europe. These are basically the top storage facilities for wine in each of their regions. They're all state-of-the-art. They have all the humidity, seismic controls, basically everything you could possibly think of that could potentially harm a wine. They, they've ameliorated all those issues and you know basically made, made up for that. What, what's really interesting is a majority of our wines, I would say over 90% now, is are stored in Europe, predominantly in the UK. We have a little bit in Bordeaux now. And that is because UK and around London in particular has been basically the hub of wine trade for centuries, actually. So for, for years and years, wines were basically brought to London and then traded out, disseminated kind of through the rest of Europe. So with that, there's been an intense infrastructure of facilities built over the, you know that time, but especially the past you know 150 or 100, actually more like 50 years recently. And what has happened is a lot of the major you'll you'll see 
you know, LiveX is a partner we work with. Bordeaux Index is another partner. There are these major trading companies that need to be able to take care of the wine that both they're offering on the platform. And they also need a place where their people buying and selling on the platform can store their wines as well. So we work with a number of storage facilities in and around London. One is actually partially or half of their facility is actually an underground bunker from World War II. The other one is a large, basically air hangar. And there, I was able to go see them. And it's really interesting. There's so many levels of security, the temperature and the humidity and everything is kept to like such a fastidious degree that it's, it's, it's really impressive. And all of these, and to go on is basically there's all of these kind of secondary systems, I guess you would say fail safes. That's the word I was looking for. If something goes wrong. So one reason people store in these facilities as opposed to their house is say your power goes out at your house and you don't have a generator, your generator's out of gas or what have you, your wines will start to, you know, warm up and, and they'll, they'll change temperature. They won't be consistent. These, these facilities offer so many backups, no matter what happens, basically your wine's going to be in the right temperature. Even if there's an earthquake, a lot of them have seismic basically preparations built in. So your wine will be kept still in the dark and at the right temperature. And it's, it's been really great to have such a network of partners and, and we're constantly expanding. We've, we have a couple of partners now in Bordeaux that we're storing with. And in the U.S., we store both in Washington, D.C. and Napa Valley. And, and they play, our storage partners play a role in helping us to guarantee things like provenance and, and logging these wines upon arrival at the facility as well. Can you talk a little bit just briefly about the role of the storage facilities and their storage partners in ensuring the quality of the assets when we receive them? Yeah. So upon receival or upon receipt, basically the wines are are inspected depending on their their age. They will go through basically if they come in OWC, which almost all of our wines come in original wooden cases. The cases are either inspected to see if they have original seals that can only be put on at the winery themselves. So for the very youngest wine, where a lot of these security measures have been implemented by the chateau themselves. They'll just look at these seals for wines with a little bit more age, tending to be over five years plus. They'll actually open the, they'll break those seals. They'll open the case and then they'll look at the individual bottles. And what's interesting with these companies is they go through so many bottles of wine. They've been in business for so long that they have a really big database of what's supposed to look like what, and they work closely with producers as well to be able to say, this is what our bottles look like now. This is what our labels look like back in the 70s, 80s. And they're able to kind of go through and look at every bottle to ensure that it's real and that there's they've been stored well. There's no you know seepage. There's you know their full fill levels. And once they do that, they report back to us and let us know the condition. If there ever was an issue with the condition upon receival or around receipt or during storage, you know, say a bottle falls and breaks, all of our wines are insured. So anybody's investment through the SEC has this assurance that basically we're backed. We have insurance on our side and we've worked with the SEC to confirm, you know, basically we're following all of these protocols. So it's really interesting to have multiple levels of fail safes here. And then also for them to be able to check on our behalf, it kind of compounds the nature that we have with our merchants who also do the previous vetting as well. So we have many layers to kind of go through and ensure the bottles are great. When we when we think about the quality of the wine, the, the provenance that you, you talk about, how do we how do we ensure from the merchant partner that we're acquiring a product that hasn't been halfway across the world three different times? Are there is there a paper trail, or is it like how do, how do we track where a wine has been from from a merchant partner? Yeah, there's a few ways you can do this. There are certain partners that we work with that won't allow any wine to be sold again in Europe okay. if it's left the continent. So so that's one. They'll basically say, where are you shipping your wine from? No, we won't take it. And they'll also ask where that, that wine has been. The other piece of that is we, we t- are trying to buy closer and closer to the producers. So a lot of times we're buying nowadays from negociants, which are you know, one step away from the producer. So there we can ensure that that wine is really even, you know, in a case of Bordeaux, never mm-hmm. left Bordeaux. And on the other side, it really goes back to, say, it's a partner that's working with global partners, kind of like like LiveX. They have merchants from all over the world. They will do the initial vetting and 
you know, make understanding where in the world these people are, they'll let us know. And then if there is any sort of anomaly, say it has been shipped that long, it's actually marked before we buy it. And they flag that to us and say, you know, this wine has traveled this much and we typically won't buy those, but that's considered like a special case. So you, you you know, where the partners, the wines are coming from for the most part. So I guess there's, there's kind of strict, it's the word. Rules, regulations, guidelines. Yeah, well, yeah we exactly guidelines. That's that's podcast inability to retrieve a word. Our our strict guidelines that we have when acquiring wines probably keeps us from acquiring from too many private individuals. Then I'd expect, right? Yeah. To to date, we haven't uh, acquired from any private sellers, and okay, we right now are don't have plans to really work with partners who exclusively acquire from sellers. It's not out of the realm. And in the future, we certainly will be looking into this, but we need to have the proper processes in place to, you know, vet their provenance, but also to kind of go through and ensure the quality as well. So yeah. we will only move to that direction once we can have all the steps to ensure that the same quality that we have of all our wines currently. We've been releasing collections every seven to 14 days. Is there, do we expect to change up that cadence at all with, you know, how large the collections that we offer are or the, you know, the cadence, the the time between individual offerings? You know, the, the time for in, in between individual offerings is not set in stone. So you guys, I mean, for those who have been with Vint for a while, understand sometimes there are flash sales. Sometimes we'll release a sale without any kind of pre rah, rah and like excitement or pre information and a little bit of runway. So right now it it is moved more to about once a week. I wouldn't say that's going to be fixed. We might be able to increase a little bit more. It'll all really depend on the community and kind of what everybody's looking for. Because we want to make sure we're providing a mix. We're going to look to always have something available on the platform at all times. So if somebody comes to the platform for the first time and wants to invest or somebody wants to, again, add to their portfolio, we're going to look to have something always available for everyone. But in terms of new collections. I think you're going to be seeing a lot of, a lot of different, I guess, sizes coming up of collections. You might see some larger ones than you've seen in the past. You might see more smaller ones at different cadences. So I I would say just stay tuned. And yeah, I I think we're going to be relatively predictable, but it's nothing set in stone. Yeah. Our most recent collection, our Bordeaux and Magnum offering was our largest to date. It's a $200,000 in total value. So we expect that collection to linger for just a little bit on the platform, but it's maybe the best cornerstone offering that we featured on the Vint platform in terms of the the top wines from the top vintages from the most investable region in the whole world in a really awesome uh, bottle size in that Magnum format. So it's a perfect collection to, to start your portfolio out with or even to add kind of a foundational piece to. So, Yeah, and I would say for to just one last note on the collection cadence is if you're worry that there's not going to be any more collections or you're worried that you don't really like the current collection we are going to come out with regular collections and it's going to be fairly varied you know uh, uh, we're going to focus on having allowing investors to have a a foundation of these core regions like burgundy and like bordeaux and we'll, we'll look to be offering these kind of trending regions as well you know champagne things that are have, have historically performed well, but maybe on a smaller scale than Burgundy and Bordeaux. And then we'll also be mixing in some of these, you know, emerging regions as well. So I, I think if you aren't, for whatever reason, don't want to buy too much of the current collection, I would say, you know, just keep your, keep your eyes peeled because there's always going to be new things and things that might appeal or things that help diversify your portfolio. So maybe, and maybe that's something we talk about now, Brady, how do we talk about which ones we want to have in our portfolio, knowing that you don't, I mean, it depends on your investing style, but maybe somebody doesn't want to be all quote unquote large cap or small cap to use stock terms. Yeah, we're still flushing exactly how we're going to display this from an investor perspective on our platform. But I think those categories of, you know, starting with Bordeaux and Burgundy and thinking of those as core assets to any wine portfolio and then going down and, you know, just like you listed other regions like maybe Napa, maybe Italian wines, Spanish wines, the Rhone Valley, Australia, thinking about trending and emerging categories. We'll be categorizing those assets with, within those sort of high-level labels. 
so that folks can a little bit better understand how to, to diversify their holdings. Like I said, actually, something that I did personally was when I first invested with Vint and I actually invested in the first offering on the Vint platform and have invested in everyone since then, my strategy was to look at what I had to allocate towards wine over a one-year period and say, okay, I know that Vint has been releasing collections maybe every two weeks. I want to put a little bit into every offering. So I kind of did the math and I realized I could buy a few shares every time a collection launched. And so when I first got started, I actually, for a first time invested, I invested five times more than I knew I could invest every week to kind of get some skin in the game right away to you know hold my interest in the platform and in the asset class and really to kind of like just get myself invested for lack of better term in the asset as I started to make that more continued allocation. So that was my particular approach, invest a larger sum up front and then to make smaller investments along the way. I know plenty of our investors who have done that as well and who have really well diversified wine portfolios because of the emphasis that we place on diversification when we release these collections. So you'll typically see 20% of our collections are whiskey, about 80% are wine. And we don't release you know, multiple whiskey collections back to back to back, just like we don't release multiple burgundy collections back to back. We try and really vary our cadence. So anyone who comes to the plat- platform and just starts putting money in every offering will have a really well diversified portfolio. But I think that a great starting point would be to think about 50 to 70% of your portfolio being allocated into Bordeaux and Burgundy, into those core assets, and then peppering in some of those more trending and emerging categories like the US and Spain and Italy and the Rhone Valley in France. I think that's maybe a high level way to think about diversifying your portfolio. We don't give out investment or business or tax advice, but certainly you can reach out to us. You can email me or chat our platform to set up a call and we can kind of walk through, like I said, a little bit more hands-on approach to how you might think about your portfolio if you're interested in in thinking a little bit more strategically about your allocation. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, but this is not financial advice. So on that that glorious note, if there are potential returns down the line that we're able to return, how will these be returned to investors and how are these taxed? Yeah, it's a great question and especially relevant because we just recently made our first distribution. We were really happy to return 19.97% in less than a year on our Champagne Stars collection. That was really awesome. It was more than 21% IRR if you, you know, take an annualized look at that number. So that was awesome for our investors. But that was and, only on 20% of the collection though. Or that was it. Yeah, right. That was only on 20% of the collection that we sold off. So yeah, that's an, kind of another representation of how we're able to be kind of dynamic. We don't have to sell a whole collection at one time. We can sell off portions of it and then make distributions each quarter as funds become available. When those funds do become available, right now, funds are distributed directly back to a US bank account, the same way that investments are made on the Vint platform. In the future, we're looking to add a wallet feature that would allow you to fund your quote unquote Vint account and to also receive distributions directly back into that fund so that you can more easily cycle investments in and out and continue to reinvest or take withdrawals to your bank account. But right now, investments are made via ACH bank transfer or wire, um, and then distributions are made via an ACH transfer as well. If you have any questions about the way that works or setting up your bank account on the Vint platform, definitely reach out. In terms of tax, again, don't provide tax or legal advice. So certainly talk with your CPA before you make an investment so you understand the implications. But unlike a lot of other alternative asset platforms, investors won't receive K-1s for each of the investments that they make. This is a really big deal for us. One, because it's cumbersome to provide individual K-1s, K-1 forms to investors as a business, that's just a cumbersome process. And it can also be cumbersome at tax time for our investors. So we've actually, in in terms of the structure and the way that our assets are qualified, we're able to provide a 1099 dividend form. And so these assets are taxed as qualified dividends come tax time. And that can have varied implications related to your tax bill, depending on who you are, what kind of income you make and, and, and yeah, and 
and other things that, that that might apply to your situation. So definitely talk to a tax advisor. We found most folks have been happy with the way that we go about this process because K-1s are sort of an issue in the alternative asset space. And a lot of times I hear I hear kind of positive responses from people that when we tell them that we provide a 1099 dividend form. So these assets, we don't provide dividends, but our distributions are treated as qualified dividends at tax time. Yep, exactly. Awesome. Well, I think we've covered most of the most common questions that we get. Is there anything that you think we're missing, Brady? Yeah, I don't think so. I think this is something hopefully that we'll do periodically on the podcast so that we can just, both for you and I, to be able to talk through these things and and to refresh the way that we talk about our platform, but also to provide, like I said, transparency to our users. So hopefully this is a helpful episode. If you need to talk to anyone at Vint to get more clarity on any of these questions or you have a question of your own, definitely reach out. You can also email us at support at vint.co, as well as the emails that I gave on the front part of the episode. We'll provide several different links to resources and places that you can find information and links to schedule calls with Billy or I in the show notes. So thanks for tuning in. Cheers. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vent platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal tax or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.